0: All right, uh, here goes. One, two, three.
1: Welcome to It's Hot In Here, your Friday lunch hour radio show for environmental news, grooves, and views. We are bringing it to you for this beautiful Friday in May. Right on Michigan time, too. For those of you who are not students on the University of Michigan campus, you may not realize that a lot of our classes start at 10 minutes after the hour, and that's because we have a huge campus. Students are running back and forth from the north campus up by the hospital to the central campus right here in the middle of town. And so I want to apologize, this is Rebecca Harden, for kicking us off in Michigan time today, but thanks to the WCBN staff, as usual, for their fabulous generosity in keeping great stuff on the air. We've got a great show lined up for you today about law, property, and society, and I'm going to be talking to you about my own recent exploits in Athens, Georgia, at the meeting of an association called the Association for the Study of Law, Property, and Society, That group of lawyers and geographers and urban planners and sociologists and political scientists, they think and talk a lot about everything from intellectual property to affordable housing to indigenous rights and energy issues. And I'm going to catch you all up a little bit on some of the most cutting edge and culturally interesting law scholarship things I learned down there in Athens. Of course, also a great radio town. Got to hear some excellent college radio in Athens, Georgia, so we'll talk a little bit about that, too. I'm Rebecca Harden. I'm going to let you listen to a first track today. It's called Property Rights, actually, and it's by a really interesting DJ and musical artist, Music Box. That's M-S-K-B-X. And he's out of France, out of Lyon most recently, does some really nice dance tunes and house tunes. And I think he's got a nice mix here for us called Property Rights. Um, Let's have a listen, and we'll come right back in and talk about law, property, and society. Thanks for being with us today on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Welcome back. It's WCVN-FM Ann Arbor. And that luscious, luscious, if somewhat righteous mixing was coming to you from your News Views and Grooves environmental talk show Friday afternoons 12 to 1. It's hot in here. Actually, it's not that hot in here. I'm all alone on the mic today. This is Rebecca Harden, And I'm really missing... My Andrea, my Sam, my Pearl, my Becca, my whole team who are usually crowded around here with lots of guests, but it's commencement time and campus is emptied out and we're a little bit slower, a little bit lonelier today here at the WCBN studios. So that music was from Music Box, as I said, setting it up. It's uh, MZKBX and he's a DJ who, according to his own sort of bio, quote, expresses and exercises his freedom. His alternate name is Sasha Mambo, and he goes many places, touches on many genres, tells endless stories. For him, knowing music doesn't mean specializing in one particular style. Far from it. He has a record label and kind of production studio, Macadam Mambo imprint that he co-runs alongside Guillaume Desbois. And that label has achieved, they say, a nice international reputation in the underground scene with a series of releases focused on eclectic disco, edits, Balearic music, Chicago House, and special electronic music. So there's a lot of influences you hear there. Um, for the past couple of years, Music Box has been a resident at Le Sucre in Lyon, in France, where he's earmarked his particular style, playing afro, disco, acid, techno. And I thought it was wonderful to throw in those references to property rights and the Constitution and, of course, capitalism, as we open up an hour, well, a little less than an hour long conversation about law, property and society. For sure, those words don't sound as interesting as acid, Chicago house, (laughs) uh, disco, afro, but law, property, and society are also interesting words to rub up against each other. And I want to just report back to our listeners here in Ann Arbor from my recent trip down to Athens, Georgia, for the annual meeting of the Association of Law, Property, and Society. Um, Now, that that association uh, was founded, in fact, by a faculty member, Robin Paul Malloy, who's a prof up at Syracuse Law, um, and, you know, he, his work is really an interesting combination of technical expertise in the law, right? He's an expert on innovation and real estate transactions, law, markets, and marketization, and he's done a lot of great work on market theories that have been translated into different languages and Chinese, Japanese, Spanish... He's written a whole bunch of books, including a most recent one, which we talked about at the meetings, on uh, property law and disability, right? So how do folks with disabilities interface with uh, with property law regimes and and claim rights and assert rights um, in, in property law? And I, I think Robin Paul Malloy, um, as a founder and director of a Center on Property, Citizenship, and Social Entrepreneurism at Syracuse, was a man with a vision. He had a vision for um, enabling lawyers in practice and legal scholars to learn more and teach more to broader communities they were serving, but also broader communities of scholarship like geographers and urban planners and public health officials and scholars working on issues that are deeply related to property rights but aren't necessarily subsumed within property law. So I want to give a a quick shout out today to Robin Palmoloy, whose work has been so foundational and most interesting for me. Uh, in founding the Association for Law, Property and Society, uh, only a few short years ago, six, it's been six or seven years, um, he managed to get a whole bunch of of really dynamic young scholars on board with him who have kind of taken it up and taken it over and and filled it with some of their own interests and their own um, agendas. And so it's grown um, and it's become some place where people can go to meet and learn and talk about how do we teach property? How do we teach law? Are we doing it in the ways that we need to to solve social problems that are bigger than just legal frameworks, right? So, there's been so much I've learned in listening to colleagues who span, you know, inner city campuses and Ivy League, who span universities in Ireland and Britain and Amsterdam and South Africa, talking with profs from the U.S. Academy about. How do you teach case law? How do you do you do that? Like, how do you know when you're doing a good job? How do you know if you're using the cases thoroughly enough? And if you're being innovative enough in the classroom as you develop your own courses and help them relate to media issues, community issues, political causes and campaigns... And I have to say that that emphasis in the association on being better mentors and better teachers is something that makes it a really unique place from from my vantage point. Of course, this time of year, always want to give a quick shout out to the teachers and the students. Huge congratulations to our graduates on this campus and many other campuses in the Ann Arbor area and the wider state of Michigan. Indeed, the country. Um, there are so many folks who've worked so hard. And I always feel lucky to teach in a school like the School of Natural Resources and Environment, where it's really clear to me that the majority of my students are really not in it for the money. They are in it for the solving social problems side of stuff. So I, I'm, I'm really in, always interested to find communities where people are thinking across schools, across professions, about how to make better problem solvers with every graduating class and people that are going to outdo our generation in terms of being able to think and act in ways that are truly new. So Robin Paul Malloy, someone who's advanced those agendas in a huge way, both through his, his scholarship and through the fact that he founded this society, um, someone who's who's whose work I think has really been important and really takes off. Now, if you all want to see more or hear more about Robin and about his work, you can do that by looking up the association for law, property and society online. It goes by the acronym ALPS and the website is actually hosted by Syracuse. Um, So if you, if you Google ALPS Syracuse, ALPS Syracuse, you'll find the website. I will also of course post it in our usual blogcast. We have gone to a format on this show, where we do our live broadcasts on Friday, and on Saturday we roll out a blogcast, which is a much richer text interface with, um, you know, bios and links, more information for folks on issues that we've covered in our conversations on the air. So that blogcast will certainly be up tomorrow, and on it I'll post the link to alps.syr.edu, and I'm feeding you that website just because I know so many of our listeners now are streaming us on digital devices or on their laptops. And I want to encourage you to just check out that website right off the bat. You'll see photos from previous meetings in Georgetown, in D.C., in Vancouver, um, and from the Athens-Georgia meeting. You'll be able to see kind of the, the life of the association. And, of course, there's a Facebook page as well for the association where you'll see recent photographs of the faculty who've received awards. Well, who did receive awards, you may ask. So this year, the association gave two different awards. One was for excellence, and one was for service. And of course, those two things are very related. But I want to just mention that Laura Undercuffler, who's a law scholar at Cornell University, received the Excellence Award in part for her remarkable books on property and on corruption in government and in property law. She's a a tremendous scholar and a tremendously engaged intellectual person. She gave us a fabulous talk on the curious phenomenon of the AIG lawsuit against the U.S. federal government. And she helped us think about how looking at takings taking's precedents in U.S. property law helps us understand trends in the law in terms of how the government responds to these kinds of, of cases. And it was a beautiful talk that made almost all of us in the room really rethink how the legal process creates political precedence in terms of what governments owe citizens and what citizens owe one another when it comes to land rights and even revenue streams, Right, so Laura was also asking us to think about the relationship between land rights, like what can I do on my beach house lot, and and the capacity that individuals or corporations have to generate wealth. It was a terrific, terrific talk, and um, and then the service award that same that same plenary session went to Guy Pindell, who's out of um, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and who has been an absolute paragon of. In, you know, participation and engagement in communities around his campus and putting his teaching and his knowledge of the law to service, to the service of those around his campus community and around his, you know, who sort of flank him as a member of a faculty and our neighbors to us as academics. And so not only has he, Served as you know in dean's positions and administrative roles but he's mentored a lot of students through law school oftentimes non-traditional students who struggle to get a foothold and we had folks at this conference who run programs that take for example indigenous canadians and help them get up to speed on property law before they enter those law classes so that they can you know manage even if they've come out of Educational institutions at a tribal scale that haven't had the same kind of curriculum and skills precisely as a lot of their law colleagues. How do we get non-traditional students like that up to speed and into the legal, the practicing law community? So Guy and his colleagues in those efforts really taught me a lot about how we can open up teaching practices and be more generous academics in terms of both putting our research at the service of communities and pulling community members into the classroom and conferring on them the kinds of um, knowledge and the kinds of status that the formal education in law or medicine or any other field Can can have right and and enabling them to go out of those graduate educational opportunities back into their communities and do work um, with on new kinds of platforms. So that that's something that the association is really good about. I will say listening to Laura's talk that um, it reminded me of kind of a goofy song, which I would like to play for you all now because I I, I think it's a kind of a riot. Um, That song is called Private Property Rights, right? So we heard earlier uh, Music Box's Property Rights tune from his Return to Chicago mix. Um, This one is called Private Property Rights, and it's by a group called Rodentia Preharmonium don't you love the things you find when you have a Spotify account? It's just incredible. Like I would never have found this. I don't think, but here it is. It's a, it's a hilarious send up of a tune that we've played often on this show in the past. This land is your land. This land is my land. And, um, and these guys appear to be kind of a, tongue-in-cheek, intergenerational, hilarious orchestra mocking um, the kind of downside of private property rights when they bolster uh, a kind of unwillingness to collaborate and unwillingness to be reasonable people. um, And it's just a riot. So give it a listen. And when we come back, I'm hoping for some call-ins from some of those dynamic young faculty members I talked about earlier uh, within the association doing these front lines work, opening up property law, Two communities, two non-traditional students, and two government policy and corporations in ways that are super interesting. For now, Rodentia Preharmonium, private property rights.
0: Hey, 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 hey. You. Bye. Bye. Was, it's my oyster. This could be better. to be better. i better. 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 The bank is calling about my mortgage. <laughs> Am I better? <laughs> This land is my land, this land is my land
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Hot In Here, your weekly environmental talk and music show, and that was Rodentia Preharmonium Singing. This land is my land. This land is my land. And you can't have it, and I can do whatever I want to on it. And I just kind of love that tune. They are so clearly having a good time. And if you look at their Facebook page, you will find um, information about them playing in and around Florida live. And it looks from the photos on that page like they are a group of both um, adults and young people, lots of different kinds of musicians playing and singing together in a kind of spirit of... um, both levity but also serious engagement with some of the social problems that do face our country in terms of environmental politics. So kind of a fun kind of a fun group to think with, and I just had to throw that in there since we were listening to such smooth, mixed sounds earlier in the show. Kinda of more kinda of more club tunes, but this one is a more wide open, folksy kind of approach. So I I'm gonna come back to talking just a little bit about this. Fabulous conference I went to last weekend. And in particular, I want to talk about the plenary closing panel on that conference because it featured three scholars whose work is so inspirational. And I think I have one of them on the phone for you today. But let me set this up by telling you that we heard about how we can bring social process and politics to the law. We heard from Lorna Foxo-Mahoney, who is a professor of law at the Essex Law School and the executive dean of Faculty of Humanities in the UK. Lorna is Irish and she does unabashedly does problem-driven research in the interests of advancing the views and interests of lower-income residents of housing developments in cities in the UK and in Scotland and Ireland. And she works with people on how they think about and talk about home and how that matters to the way the law handles their claims. We also had Audrey McFarlane out of University of Baltimore. Audrey talking with us about her own research, looking at rich door, poor door developments in condo complexes with mixed upper and lower income residents. And finally, we had Thomas Mitchell, a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. And I I think we may have a call in, right? Is that perhaps... Thomas on the line with us today. Oh, who do we have on the line? Hi. You're on. It's hot in here. Hello.
2: Hello. This is Hari Osaski. <gasps> Hari Calling Osof- from the University of Minnesota.
1: How fabulous. I was just talking about... Our recent meetings in Athens, Georgia, and the way that we combined that initial uh, that initial impulse of Robin Paul Monoy to f- set up this association and create a forum for exchange with some recent advances on things like sustainable housing, intellectual property, easements, conservation, indigenous rights. And I couldn't be happier to hear from you, Hari, because to be honest with you, you are the person who's brought geography into this. For our listeners... Hari is not only a law professor, but Hari, tell us what else you do and how else you think.
2: So, um, I, as uh, you know, have my initial background in law, um, but decided actually when I was already a tenure stream academic to do a PhD on the side in geography. And part of why I did is because I think that um, geography, um, which for those of you unfamiliar, um, is sort of the study of place, space, and um, scale, and how they vary over time. You can think of it as like history, except it deals with, which brings together a diverse set of things, um, uh, subject matters, uh, but unifies them with the idea of time. And geography does the same thing with space. Um, And, um, you know, one of the things that um, that geography is, is particularly helpful when brought together with law and with property in particular is... Helping us to think about how we can do governance better and, and governance better often in less contentious ways. So my work in particular sort of complements the discussion you've been having, um, in its focus on energy and, and climate change. Um, and there are a couple of really innovative new developments in property law in that area, um, that really highlight sort of the the constructive role that property law can play in thinking about these problems. So one is in the area of takings, um, which is sort of a core area of property law, um, in which um, we we in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution say that if the government takes our property for a public purpose, it has to pay just compensation to people. Um, And recently, in the context of... um, uh, some protective sand dunes that were built in New Jersey in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy, a court said, "You know what? When we take into account the compensation that people get when government takes their property, we need to look at the benefits that they get, and and took into account the benefits of a protected sand dune in sort of a climate change adaptation sense." Um, similarly, in local government. Um, there are a lot of choices that local governments make that are economic win-win, like energy efficiency that pays back very quickly, um, that really involve local land use planning and property choices as well.
1: You know, I was just talking, Hari, about um, the way that Laura Undercuffler's talk with us at the conference kind of asked us to think about takings in those ways. And I, I think you're you're absolutely spot on to unpack for our audience what are some of the core concepts that people can reach into and grab in fields like geography, but also law, that can help us think across these fields and and think in ways that reflect what you call intersectionality. Because gosh, the problems are intersectional, right? And and so so has to be our thinking. I was really taken too, though, with your um, your presentations and the presentations by your students on less theoretical and more practical challenges, like the relationship between energy poverty and kind of property rights and indigenous rights um, in the Arctic and and, and transport politics in, in our cities. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you're operationalizing some of these theories in your own teaching and your own work? Of course. So, you know, one of
2: the things that I, I should say, one of the things that I think is wonderful about ALS, the Association for Law, Property and Society, is that it really, I think, has provided a very constructive space to bring together a set of people who don't always talk to each other in a diverse set of topics, but where sort of property and ideas of property unify their work. And so we've had people from lots of different countries, lots of different disciplines. Um, we've created a lot of interaction between people just starting their careers and people farther along. Um, and in the particular substantive context that you're talking about, um, you know, one of, the, um, one of the joys, I think, of academia is that you have an opportunity to through your teaching, um, work with sort of the next generation of leaders on these issues. Absolutely. Um, and so in particular, I taught an environmental and energy justice capstone course um, in which one of our projects was with the Northwest Arctic Borough. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar, um, this is a, an area about the size of the state of Indiana above the Arctic Circle, um, and um, it, it's over uh, 80% Native Alaskan. Um, and they have a real problem because the main way they get electric power is by flying in really expensive diesel fuel. And these are people who mostly live a subsistence lifestyle for whom, you know, that's that's kind of a major economic imposition. And so what my students did together with local leaders was think about how we could develop a renewable energy ordinance um, and um, particularly focused on solar um, and um, plan for them that, that would help them bring renewable energy in to help make energy costs cheaper for people living there. Um, and then, you know, others of my projects, um, so my students came and presented on um, the, the the work that they did looking at metropolitan planning organizations and environmental justice. So for those of you unfamiliar with the sort of um the history of metropolitan transportation in the United States in many cities, including the Twin Cities where I live, um, there were decisions in the buildings of highways and other roads that really negatively impacted low-income um, minority communities. So, for example, in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, we literally built a freeway on top of our sort of most, sort of a very vibrant African-American community um, in the sort of Rondo neighborhood. And so, um, one of the things that, that that modern transportation policy is trying to do is is address some of those past injustices and also kind of think, sort of make sure that those issues get incorporated into the way they do planning. And so, um, the team, my students, worked with our metropolitan planning organization um, to look at how regions around the country are dealing with environmental justice and transportation planning in order to have some models up for um, what, what the Twin Cities options are. Um, I also had another group of students looking at freeway capping, working with our College of Design um, and the Metropolitan Design Center in particular. Um, freeway capping is this really interesting idea where you basically sort of build these things over freeways that can have parking structures and green space and, and, and residential and commercial buildings Um, And provide a way to reunify some of these communities that have been divided by freeways, um, vent out some of the pollution that disproportionately affects people living by freeways. So they're really exciting opportunities, not just to write about this stuff as an academic, but to also um, work with these issues on the ground.
1: Hari, you're well-placed to talk about those opportunities as someone who's a former president of the association and has sponsored Really amazing meetings, a doubleheader, an energy meeting and an ALPS meeting at the University of Minnesota not a couple of years ago, right? And you had us eating dinner in um, small ethnic restaurants that had been negatively impacted by some of the transportation uh, policy and infrastructure developments in in Minneapolis. I mean, I think the sort of... um, not only talking the talk, but walking the walk, and even eating the eat to all this is is where I see um, a lot of your contribution, both to the association and to your various fields. I I am blown away knowing what I know about your schedule today that you were able to call in at all but I want to just remind our listeners that they can find a lot more information about Hari about her students' projects about the learning across Arctic and other sites in North America across transport um, authorities in different contexts in the U.S. and between geography and law on our blogcast, where we'll have bios and links coming up tomorrow and Hari I'll let you go get back to your crazy busy day but thank you so much for telling us about your work and your relationship to the association we're going to be here hearing from a few other faculty very shortly at about twelve fifty. We've got Thomas calling in from University of Wisconsin. So I'm gonna let you go, Kari, and thank you so Great. much for your thank call. Thank
2: you so much for including me, Rebecca, and for for doing for, for doing a service of really spreading the word about the kind of work that the association is doing. And I hope that those listening Um, get
1: involved. Thanks so much, Hari. Have an awesome day. And for our listeners, I'm going to play a quick track. It's a song called (laughs) Energy in deference to Hari's uh, research focus right now at the moment. It's by Natalie Nicole Alvarado, a Texas girl who did in fact study criminal justice in college. But that may not be her claim to fame. She was also a cheerleader for the Houston Rockets. And uh, during her stint as a cheerleader, worked on her lyrical skills and even added some rapping and dance performance. And so here's a track by Natalie called Energy. We'll just play a minute or two of it as we get ready to hear from Thomas Mitchell and get back to those questions about affordable housing and how those relate to the kinds of policy challenges Hari was talking about. Natalie... (laughs) Back to It's Hot in Here, WCVN-FM, Ann Arbor. That was Energy by Natalie Nicole Alvarado featuring Baby Bash. And remember, Natalie was a criminal justice student in college, but also cheerleader and R&B hit singer. I, I just love the combinations you find for people. In fact, I've got a combination on the line that you all are going to really like. Thomas, thank you for calling us. Welcome to It's Hot in Here. Are you on the line with us, Tom?
3: Uh, I am. How you Thank doing, you for, Rebecca? I'm
1: great. It, it feels great to both have seen you recently and be able to talk to you on the telephone on air today. Thomas Mitchell is a professor at University of Wisconsin Law School. And if I'm not mistaken, Tom, you're directing the program in real estate, land use, and community development. Is that correct?
3: Yes, I've done that uh, in addition to a number of other things.
1: And so I was really taken, and I was telling our listeners earlier about the the way you held down a, a third of that Last panel at our meetings last week with Lorna Fox O'Mahony and Audrey McFarlane, also really interesting scholars at the interface of how our legal theory and teaching affects and reflects challenges in communities around property and property retention. And you, you were talking, if I'm not mistaken, about the kind of risky decisions you made as a young scholar to do outreach work and build education in communities and intervene on the tools property that the communities have available to retain property. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, sure. I think um, I think a lot of my decisions earlier in my career were kind of driven by what my values were, what I thought I could do in terms of leveraging my work as a scholar and as somebody at a university um, with vast resources. And so in addition to obviously working on my scholarship, um, I also tried to do at least a couple things. One was engage in a significant amount of community engagement work, especially with poor and disadvantaged um, and disproportionately minority property owners in various parts of the country. In fact, some of my earlier scholarship was very much informed by attending uh, a number of uh, meetings in various communities and poor rural uh, places in the South. Um, Tom, Tom, how did they
1: how did that how did they see you coming into those those meetings? I mean, did you ever feel um, out of place or ill at ease as as a kind of academic expert in those arenas, or did you feel like there was a lot of um, of, of real need and and real welcoming of you into those circles?
3: Yeah, I think uh, pretty universally, my experience was. That um, they were quite happy um, that you would have a legal scholar actually attend their community meetings, and oftentimes places I attended the meetings were in some of the poorest counties in the rural South. So, in some ways, they weren't totally accustomed to having, uh, you know, a legal scholar want to come to these places. And then, I think, secondly, um, I think they, um, you know, kind of realized pretty soon um, that. You know I wasn't just trying to kind of parachute in and um you know develop my scholarly reputation based upon their unfortunate circumstances and and parachute out um and so i th- I think you know after I was able to demonstrate that um I had a more kind of long lasting commitment to trying to help their communities right, uh, I think they were just you know very, very generous and very happy.
1: Well, and, and it added up, too. I mean, it, you ended up as uh, the reporter or the person drafted drafting, really, um, or responsible for primary drafting of this Uniform Partition of Heirs Property Act, which has been a pretty big legacy of those many, many engagements and conversations, I guess, if, if I'm to understand correctly.
3: Yeah. I mean, we're, we were dealing with um, a driver of land loss uh, within poor and disadvantaged communities um, that, you know... Uh, certainly legal scholars were familiar with but uh the kind of received wisdom was that nothing could be done for these people in terms of any real reform to the law no matter how unfortunate and how unjust um the application of the law was um, and you know from a, a variety of different um Kind of stars lined up uh, to actually a, 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 that opened up a small window of opportunity to actually reform the um, the law in this area in terms of developing this model state statute um, and what i 'm kind of in some ways most happy about was that I was really able to leverage um, my relationships with these communities, bring them to the table in many instances in the three years that we Uh, drafted our model state statute called a Uniform Act. Um, And very much in the drafting process, um, many of these folks from these communities or the public interest and civil rights lawyers who were working with them in the trenches, essentially they had access to the most relevant data um, in terms of what exactly is the practice. On the ground, um, with respect to this particular legal procedure called a uh, partition action, Um, and you know, oftentimes we were, as kind of scholars, we were at a kind of disadvantage when you looked at our traditional data sets. If you looked at uh, appellate cases reported in places like Westlaw and Lexis. and Texas, right. I mean, those cases are, right. uh, are, are appealed. And oftentimes when you're dealing with poor people, they mm-hmm. don't have the resources to appeal. So a lot of those cases would be otherwise invisible right. to most scholars. And so I think these communities were often able to sit down as we we're sitting around the conference table, actually tell us in explicit detail, how the law actually worked on the ground and that shaped how we the reforms that we uh, drafted to address those problems
1: Well that's incredible and as I'm, I'm looking through your website you, you I mean there's a lot of background it, it reminds us as, as readers of your site and, and, and of your work that you're just the second African-American to have served as a reporter for the Uniform Law Commission in its 120-year history. And, it, you know, the, the language you're using here reminds me so much of a couple of weeks ago we had Robert Bullard, Bob Bullard from Texas, in the studio with us talking about this, you know the. the when you get past the fear of parachuting into communities and actually get engaged, amazing things can happen. And he wasn't even talking about winning law- lawsuits necessarily, which he's you know he's talking about just the act of even bringing them. Sometimes just the way you push on legal process, even if you don't get everything drafted to perfection or you don't win an actual victory in court, the fact of pushing on the legal process itself... Is really important and I just think that's really, really worth mm. bearing in mind mm. for a generation of um, upcoming leaders and, mm. and folks who 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 understand how complicated mm. these things can be. Um, yeah. w- what are you working on now? What are your what are you need? We only have about another minute or, or so to talk, but what, what are what's in your sights these days? What kinds of things are opening out for mm. you um, as, as frontiers in your work right now, Tom?
3: Yeah, there's been kind of a, a few spin offs of the work I did with the statute. I mean, one of the things I'm continuing uh, as a reporter, I've uh, continued to be involved in trying to get it enacted into law. So I'm actively involved right now. We've got it enacted in law in five states and been very active in the effort to get it enacted in South Carolina and Connecticut, this legislative session, and Mississippi, West Virginia, and uh, some other states. Um, sounds exhausting.
1: <laughs> it but sounds just, like a struggle. Of
3: policy hat, I think there's been spinoffs in terms of some of my work um, on this act. From looking at it from an international comparative perspective, and saying, you know, how are poor and disadvantaged property owners who are um, similarly impacted by a similar legal process, um, you know, what's their experience in kind of a handful of other countries that I'm um, that I'm looking at. That sounds. Um, and then I have um, I have a project that's you know. I guess there's a law angle in it somewhere mm-hmm. but it's it's really kind of history sociology and anthropology where I'm studying a community in um, Eastern North Carolina that was one of 50 communities to get land um, under a new Deal program that uh, allowed poor farm families to um, to get access to land through uh, low-cost mortgages mm-hmm. and um, you know well that but- sounds
1: fascinating and, and sort of like our previous caller Hari very very cross-cutting I mm-hmm. I will feature that work and your um, bio and some links to your recent work on our blogcast that'll go up tomorrow that'll go live and yeah. uh, Thomas I just want to thank you for calling in and telling us yeah. more about about what what you've done, I I will look forward to getting from you any any recent links you want us to yeah, include yeah. on that broadcast tomorrow, and I will certainly send you the MP3 of this hour's conversation. Sounds
3: great, and I just want to give a shout out to the Association for Law, Property, and Society, as I said at the meeting Such. in Athens. If uh, I don't really join a lot of stuff sometimes, but as, you, like, <laughs> as you
1: said at it the is, meeting, not yeah. one to rush things. But if you exactly. were going to rush anything, uh, it and would and be out. Thank
3: you for your you know your great service in terms of disseminating. Um, you know this type of knowledge and and other things that you do in your uh, in your weekly program. Well, thank uh, you. So that's great.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Have a great okay. day. We'll be in touch, absolutely. And my listeners, I'm going to take us out after this fabulous conversation with my colleagues from Alps with a tune, of course. This is one of our uh, last outros of the academic year, and we're hoping to bring you some hot and hair broadcasts over the summer. There'll be more on that on our website. You could check in to see how often in the summer. There'll be more on that on our website. You could check in to see how often and whether we'll be broadcasting this summer. Otherwise, let me close today. Thanking my colleagues from the Association for Law, Property and Society for their, you know, really short, uh, just quick turnaround call-ins to share the kinds of work they're doing, and let me just uh, introduce this group that you're going to hear from now: the Trifids, one of Australia's best-loved post-punk groups, a kind of a seminal rock pop band in out of Perth, and the title of this tune, appropriately, is Stolen Property, so I'm going to let it take us out after this brief window into law, property, and society. I will hear, I'm sure, more from many of you in comments on our blog. Please stay in touch over the summer, keep it real, keep it green, and keep it tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is Rebecca Harden. Thanks for a fabulous year on It's Hot in Here.
0: 6th floor of the Ogilvy Broadcast Demographic Corporation in New York City to executives sit in conference.
1: The latest global music dominator computer analysis shows that our intelligently rigid demographics are failing